you're not just choosing on skill set, you're, you're choosing on values and, and a much broader set of criteria. And when we recruit here in a business, we don't just look at a person's CV, we don't just look at a person's university track record, we look at them as people. And I've, I've fundamentally believed in the philosophy, as you just said then, that good people get better outcomes. Um, you can go only for talent, and I think you'll fail spectacularly. And that's not just related to sport, I think that relates to every part of industry that looking for good rounded people uh, with a good skill set and then ultimately holding them accountable is, is how you get success. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a grateful and humble leader who loves connecting with people in one of the world's toughest sports, rugby league. He completed a sports science degree at the College of Knowledge and a Masters of Sport Management at the University of Technology, Sydney. His career has included Events and Promotions Manager at Cricket New South Wales, Operations and Events Manager and CEO at Canterbury Bankstown Bulldogs, General Manager at ANZ Stadium, Head of Football at the NRL and is currently the CEO of NRL in Australia. I have the absolute pleasure of introducing one of Australia's top sport administrators who is a handy cricket player and that would love to be a defence lawyer in his next period of life and is passionate about building inclusive and engaged communities through sport. Todd Greenberg. Todd, welcome to the show. That's a very nice introduction. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to having some time with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. What was life like growing up for you in Randwick and Dover Heights in Sydney? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Sydney boy uh, born and bred um, and grew up in the eastern part of Sydney and now live in the southern part of Sydney. But I mean, Sydney is one of the world's great cities um, and it's also one of the great sporting cities. Um, so, you know, I was in a very fortunate childhood. Uh, I grew up in a great middle class family, um, you know, brothers, uh, I'm the eldest of four boys. Um, and a lot of the things now that I had originally taken for granted um, have come home to roost. What I mean by that is I took for granted that everybody went to a good school, uh, ultimately went to a good university and every night came home and had dinner around the table with their parents and their siblings. Um, that's how I grew up. Um, and when I look back on that, I was very fortunate because a lot of the young footballers now who come into our care haven't been afforded some of those privileges, haven't been afforded a really strong family network with all of the values that resonate around the dinner table every night. Um, and that's a big challenge for us in, in my current role. Definitely, and you know, having that support network that's outside of their day-to-day -day job or, or the life that they live is, is crucial to be able to take that break away, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, growing up in a, an environment where it was relatively normal to sit around the table, and then when I reflect on some of the players that, I, as I've described in the media a number of times, come from a long way back, and what I mean by that is some of them come from broken homes, some of them come from homes where domestic violence is prevalent, um, and some of them come through an era where they haven't been educated, they haven't finished school. Um, so we take that responsibility very seriously, uh, which is why you'll consistently hear us talk about 
It's not just be about being a great footballer. It's not just about being fitter, faster and stronger. It's actually being a better person, a more rounded individual who can contribute back to their communities. And so being a part of rugby league will give you a lot of life lessons and an experience for the next phase of your life when you finish actually playing. And, and that's, that's a rounded statement, but it takes a huge amount of investment, energy, time and resources to actually fulfill that promise. Yeah, and, and so staying in your childhood a little bit, you know, mm. cricket was a, a real passion for it yours. Was. You know, how important was sport as part of your upbringing and your community and your mm. family? Yeah, very important. And reflecting now um, on my childhood, I think playing a team sport, particularly irrelevant of what sport it is, playing a team sport provides you so many life lessons, particularly for your business life. Um, so things like. Uh, sacrifice, things like teamwork, things like camaraderie, uh, understanding the nuances of different personalities within the team uh, are all about the things you do as a child but you actually don't understand it at the time. But those experiences are very rich for later parts in your life. Uh, which is why I'm always a really big advocate now for any kid to play any form of team sport. Um, it's almost irrelevant what they play. Of course I want them to play rugby league. but. Um, I want to see them active and playing team sports because I think the life lessons coming out of a, a team sport environment hold you in good stead for the rest of your life. Mm, definitely do. So talking about moving into you know, beyond your childhood years, what was your first ever job you had? Um, well, I had a, a multiple number of different jobs as a young, young guy. I mean, because I, I played a lot of cricket, um, my weekends were very busy uh, playing Saturdays and Sundays and training a lot. Um, when I was quite young, I got a, a job working at White City, uh, which is in the eastern part of Sydney where the tennis used to be played, the New South Wales Open. And I, and I worked there as a ball boy for a while and then uh, ultimately just around those tournaments as a kid. Um, and I think a, a huge part of my love for sport was developed through that, that era. And then I did lots of, uh, lots of jobs leading into uh, completing my HSC. And then ultimately going to university straight afterwards. But um, we came from a family where work ethic was principally driven from our parents. Um, and the more you, you tried, the harder you tried, the luckier you got. Uh, and luck was, was self-made. Yeah. So looking back in the archives of Todd Greenberg mm -hmm. as, a, as a young person coming through in the early parts of his career, you know, what was the best piece of advice that you got from someone that was in your proximity? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, you get lots of different advice through your, your early parts of your career. Um, I just mentioned one of them before, D don't expect luck. You have to make your own luck. Um, and the other thing was to always believe you know, intuitively in your own ability um, to back yourself consistently. Uh, because quite often professionally, uh, timing chooses you, you don't choose the timing. And so, Quite often in my career, I've been afforded some great professional opportunities that at the time you are unsure if you're genuinely ready for that opportunity. Uh, all that means is that timing's chosen you and it's time to roll the sleeves up and work hard. So the no shortcuts, not expecting luck and actually working for your own success, I think were the early attributes taught to me. Um, I was very fortunate in my, effectively my first professional full-time role was at cricket, as you mentioned in the opening. Um, I had a, a CEO, a boss there, his name was Bob Radford. He's, he's since passed. Um, he was a tremendous man uh, who was one of the very early influences on my professional career because he fundamentally believed in me as a person. Um, and early on, uh, took me under his wing and taught me a lot of very important life lessons. 
less technical, uh, but much more about emotional intelligence. And I think to survive in sport, particularly in sports administration, it takes an equal set of uh, IQ as well as EQ. Uh, emotional intelligence is hard to teach. It's something that you have to learn on, on the job. And um, it's a, a very big component of being successful in sport because emotional intelligence for me really defined as being, how do you see around corners? How do you predict what's about to happen? And in my current role, sometimes that's pretty tricky to do. Yeah, definitely. So in 2008, you were appointed as the as a CEO of Canary Bankstown Bulldogs Rugby League team. And at the time, you were the youngest CEO in the NRL, mm. leading a club that was dealing with a number of on and off the field distractions. What was your, you know, your, kind of your big lesson in those first sort of few weeks as a CEO? Yeah, I mean, uh, that goes back some time now. It was back in 2008. And, you know, I just alluded to previously that sometimes you get opportunities when you're not 100% sure if you genuinely think you're ready. Um, and that was one of those opportunities. I was relatively young, relatively inexperienced, uh, quite naive in parts, but um, without having a huge ego, I, I believed in my own ability to make a difference. Um, and at the time, I saw the Bulldogs as a club that were effectively on their knees, uh, a very proud and historic club over a long period of time that had lost their way. Um, and I thought they needed a reset on their, their values and not only just talking about values, but actually living them and breathing them every day. And I actually thought the club, the supporters of the club wanted to be proud of their club and they weren't at that particular time particularly proud. And in sport, it's an emotional connection with the brand of which you, you follow. And um, I had a clear plan of what I needed to do. Um, again, I was a bit naive and ran into a few potholes, but that's what you do in your professional career. You, you fall into potholes and you, you don't make every decision um, that in hindsight you would do again but that's part of learning, that's part of life. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the Bulldogs. They are a wonderful club, they are a wonderful club, full of great people. Um, it was some very challenging times early on there for me, again, coming in ex inexperienced, but um, I had good people around me and I put lots of good people around me in a team sense. And we achieved some great things over that period of time. But um, the key learning is nothing happens by chance and nothing happens overnight. You have to genuinely have some strategic intent and you've got to be prepared to follow through on what you say. Uh, words are hollow, actions are the ones that really mean something. So reflecting back in that time mm. and you know, with hindsight uh, as, as an opportunity to, to help people moving forward, if people are rebuilding a sports club, what are the most important components that need to be front of mind when making decisions? You've already alluded to values. Mm. What else do you think is really important during that time? I think uh, first and foremost, uh, one of the most important lessons is that a sports club is owned by its fans. It's owned by its supporters. And as leaders, whether it's the board or it's the CEO, they become effectively the custodians for that period of time. But understanding and looking through the lens of the supporters and the fans being the, the true owners, the true lovers of that particular club, making decisions that are in their best interests, their long-term best interests, uh, you will never go wrong if you make those decisions looking through that prism. Um, fans are emotionally connected with their clubs. Um, they're emotionally connected with the brand of that club and through the colours of that club. Now, that, that's the very, very good part of being inside a sports club. It's also one of the most difficult parts and challenging parts when things don't go right or things don't go to plan because that emotional connection and that passionate engagement can create 
some, uh, how would I describe, some, some strange responses to certain issues. Uh, but that's the beauty of sport. And the moment that you don't want emotional connections and passionate responses from fans is the day you should probably move out of sport because that's what sport is built on. It's sport is built on passion and tribes of people who get behind their team in good and in bad. And as the leader of the sports club, whatever that franchise might be, and in, in my point it was the Bulldogs, it was effectively making those supporters proud of the club they supported, proud and engaged with their club. You can't make it just about winning. And if you go into a strategic plan saying, we're gonna win and everything falls from the back of that, you're gonna be sadly disappointed because winning is the outcome of a process. You have to have a much broader strategy for your sports club. And it's really about making fans proud of them. Uh, and you can be made very proud, but still lose a game on the field. It's about how you engage, how you interact, and how you conduct yourself as a club. And, and what I learned very quickly was fans are very resilient. They don't necessarily need to win everything. Of course they want to, because they're passionately engaged, but they want to feel genuinely connected and genuinely proud of the club they support. So if we look at, say, the All Blacks, which is you know, one of the most uh, winning teams mm. that we've ever seen in the world of mm. sport, they have a term called better people make better All Blacks. Yeah. How important is to choose character before talent when it comes to you know, building that team environment inside a sports club? Yeah, look, I think that's a fundamental premise of a recruitment and retention strategy. And I think uh, most sporting franchises over the last decade have started to evolve to that position where you're not just choosing on skill set, you're, you're choosing on values and, and a much broader set of criteria. And when we recruit here in a business, we don't just look at a person's CV, we don't just look at a person's university track record, we look at them as people. And I've fundamentally believed in the philosophy, as you just said then, that good people get better outcomes. Um, you can go only for talent, and I think you'll fail spectacularly. And that's not just related to sport, I think that relates to every part of industry, that looking for good rounded people uh, with a good skill set, and then ultimately holding them accountable is, is how you get success. Yeah. Tribal emotion is the heart and soul of sports fans around the world and we see sports teams as the pillar of the community. What strategies have you seen successfully kind of implemented that help in, in enable a really inclusive and also engaged community, especially in you know parts of Melbourne and say Sydney where it is very multicultural? It is, absolutely. And you know, having worked at the Bulldogs in a incredibly multicultural environment, I mean I remember vividly in 2012 standing on the streets of Belmore leading into the grand final that the Bulldogs were about to compete in and you know the players were doing a street parade and there were literally more than a hundred different nationalities and cultures standing on the sides of the streets but they all had one common purpose which was their footy team and I can't think of another example in our communities that bind that together where peoples from such disparate disparate cultures and communities come together for one common cause Sport has the ability to unite that like nothing else. Um, but I do think fundamentally, first and foremost, uh, your players inside your club need to understand the broader scope of their responsibilities. Um, yes, they need to play well every Saturday or Sunday that they play and they need to be good footballers, but they as equally need uh, a dose of humility and an understanding that they need to be good people as well. Um, and blended those two things together create a long-term sustainable, successful club. Um, the, player, the fans really want the players to be performing well on the field, but they also want them to be good people off the field, contributing back to their communities. And that gets that stickiness and engagement with their fans, not just on game days, but for seven days a week. 
So we talk about how sport brings people together. Mm. How important of a role does sport play in enabling social change in society? Yeah, well, I think, um, again, using your voice wisely in sport can get you some much bigger outcomes. And we've seen that in more recent times here at the NRL where, you know, we have a big share of voice. Um, If you open the back page of the newspaper on most days, you've got to get through three, four, five, six pages of rugby league before you find another sport. Uh, And we don't take that for granted here. Um, Our relevance and our share of voice is enormous, particularly on the Eastern Seaboard. So using your voice wisely to promote key causes or to promote key messages is very important. Um, so it, one of, we only have four values inside the whole sport and one of those values is inclusiveness. Now it's very easy to say one of your values is being inclusive and write it up on the wall and staff walk past it every day but it's a, it's a whole nother matter to live it and breathe it every day. Um, and when you get challenged occasionally, reverting back to what you are, your beliefs and your value system is most important in the decision making, which is why we say all the time that rugby league wants to be a game for all. Um, irrelevant of where you come from, what your background is, what your ethnicity is, um, whether you're male or female, um, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're from an indigenous background or Pacifica background, we want everyone to feel welcome. And again, when you get challenged on that, you have to look through that that value set and say, we are an inclusive game and you've got to live it and breathe it every day. And sometimes that's challenging, but uh, I think it's important that people know where you stand. So before coming CEO at NRL, you were the head of football. What What does that role entail and how easy was it for you to transform from working in the business to actually working on the business. Mm. Yeah, that's a good description because it's um, it's a good pathway coming through football because irrelevant of how big this business is, um, the core component will always be what you see on the field. That's really what matters most. Um, w- people will call it, that's our product. I don't necessarily like the term product, but effectively knowing the core part of the business, which is football, is very important so having two and a bit years as the head of football provided a very good insight into all of those challenges whether it's the medical challenges we confront running a collision sport right through to the technology advances the game's made uh, right through to all of the day-to-day issues like refereeing and match officials and judiciaries and uh, match review committees and all those sorts of challenges that consume the public's attention when they're watching games every weekend Uh, So I thoroughly enjoyed my time in football um, and it was very much about rolling the sleeves up every weekend knowing you've got eight games of which you're responsible for. Um, And in a professional sense for those listening to these messages, it's like having an active performance review eight times every single weekend. Um, So it's very difficult to switch off. Uh, You you are always on and you're always on alert to ensure you give your best self. this role that I'm currently doing is slightly different. There are people responsible in portfolios. Uh, my role is to make sure that everyone is providing those key leadership roles within each portfolio and ensuring the business continues to grow and continues to innovate and also continues to look at what it looks like in the next three, five, 10, 20 years. What's rugby league gonna look like in the next generation? Um, that's a real leadership challenge here and we've got to continue to challenge ourselves on how we get bigger and better. You talk about in that head of operations role mm. of being eight performance reviews in one weekend. Yeah. So were you working seven days a week? And if you were for that period of the whole NRL season, mm. how were you getting time to recharge your batteries and recover yeah. so that you could be at your best 
performance every single weekend? Yeah, I mean, I hear people say regularly, you know, um, I want to work in sport. And I say to them, if you work in sport, you have to work weekends. Uh, there's no getting away from that. If you want to be a bartender, you're going to be working Saturday nights. If you're going to work in sport, you're going to be working on weekends when people are consuming their sport. Uh, there's no getting away from that. Um, the concept of work-life balance is, in principle, very, very important, but you've got to make sure that you are available and on when needed to be, and then you can switch off when you are able to switch off. And some of that comes from real discipline, personal discipline, about when to tune in and when not to. But you know, performances here relate from Thursday night at eight o'clock when we kick off a game, right through to the last game on Sunday. So we have uh, very high visibility across most people's leisure time, which means we're on as executives, we have to be engaged at those times. Um, now how you switch yourself off in moments where you're not needed is an entirely personal matter of self-discipline. And you have to make sure that you find that discipline to be able to turn yourself on and off. Um, being able to compartmentalize issues is a real challenge um, because there'll be certain issues that you'll deal with, you need to be able to deal with them and then move on to the next one and find again that discipline between when you're on and when you're off. Many leaders talk about the importance of say that first 100 days in office and you know if you reflect back now you've been in the role for three, four years. Mm. What were the biggest items you identified that needed to change in NRL and how successful have you been in achieving those goals over that time? Um, the, the most immediate challenge for me when I jumped into the chair was people, culture and relationships. Um, I had a very distinct focus in my first 100 days to create um, a different culture and a different narrative for the sport. Uh, at, at the time of my appointment, uh, I felt that the game was very combative and it can be still in parts. I mean, people talk about rugby league as being a gladiatorial sport, tough and a collision game. And I say that's off the field before you get on the field. And it is very much like that. But um, at the time I felt that the relationships both internally but with our key stakeholders and members with our clubs and our state leagues was poor and I took it upon myself to make sure that we tried to improve those relationships. Uh, are they perfect three years on? No they're not perfect but uh, there's a much greater sense of respect and trust I think between stakeholders and ultimately if we're going to grow the game it doesn't rest only on my shoulders it has to rest on all the participants inside the game and that's clubs that's players, that's our media partners. Um, everyone needs to understand they've got a role to play. And to do that, we need a huge amount of respect and relationships across the game. And that's what I've been focused on. The education in many sports goes beyond the skills and tactics of playing the game. How does NRL tackle shifting the behaviors and mindsets of the players who come from challenging upbringings, as mm. you mentioned earlier on, mm. so they conform to the values of the club when they're under pressure? Yeah, and that's the, the ultimate part is when they're either under pressure or they have to make good decisions when they're outside the club's uh, boundaries. And again, this is educating and teaching young footballers about their roles and responsibilities, not just on the field, but away from the field. So we spend uh, an inordinate amount of money and time and put resources into our wellbeing and education program. Because, I mean, let's face it, in the modern day athletes now with social media, and all of the modern day challenges um, confront some, some big issues. Uh, mental health is now one of our greatest challenges, uh, not just in rugby league, but in our whole community. So we need to assess that and understand that and put resources behind it. So informing and educating players, talking with them, not at them, uh, giving them 
real life scenarios of which to help them manage situations and ultimately hold them accountable and ensure that their decision making is good, whether that's on the field or off the field, have equal importance. Um, now, we don't get all of that right. Um, you know, we've got effectively 500 young men, NRL players, earning salaries on average beyond $300,000. Um, as again, some of them come from disparate backgrounds. So we're going to continue to have challenges in that area. But we put an, uh, an enormous amount of resources, both at the clubs and in the centre, to try to make sure we provide players with the best opportunities to shine. And those who grab those opportunities with both hands are the ones that normally succeed. So we talked about family and support network around the players. What would be some examples of things that you do in the NRL to ensure that that support network is looked after and nurtured as well um, to ensure that the players are supported when they go home? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, you've got different um, cycles of players coming through. You've got you know, very experienced players like Cameron Smith, who's been in the system for 15, 16 years and has seen the game evolve over that period of time. And then you've got a younger player like Latrell Mitchell who's coming through, um, who's a modern generation player in his early 20s, who's probably got the next 10 years in the game. And so the level of learning that Cameron Smith requires is very, very different to the level of learning that Latrell Mitchell requires. Um, so we have to make sure that we don't just have a cookie cutter approach with one size fits all, that we have bespoke programs for individual players we want, uh, we want Latrell Mitchell to be able to be in the game for the next 10 to 15 years and leave the game uh, having secured a future for himself and an enormous amount of learning. And we also want to make sure that some of our older players, stalwarts like Cameron Smith, who played his 400th game last year, the first player ever, to make sure that he when he retires, when he chooses to retire, that the game has afforded him as many possibilities and opportunities for the next phase of his career. And so when he finishes his career, he doesn't feel like he's ending something, that he's starting something new. Uh, that takes time. It takes a really strong transition program. So we've got a number of bespoke programs which aren't a one-size-fits-all for our players. Um, and again, there's an onus of responsibility on the players here to lean in, lean forward, and use both hands and accept that opportunity as well. Uh, if I hear a player say to me through his journey, I only want to concentrate on my footy, I'll be very strong and direct with that player about having a balance in his life because it's not just about on the field, it's not just about playing on the field every weekend. We provide a much more rounded opportunity for players, but again, it's up to them to take it with both hands. With high profile fathers and, and now mothers in the game of NRL, their children also have to deal with the scrutiny mm. that, f uh, that flows over into the school ground or social circles. You know, what sort of support is there for the children because their parents are on TV all the time and whether, you know, if they win or, f or fail in the game mm. um, or they may make a mistake, it's public scrutiny, everyone knows about it. Yeah, ab absolutely right. I mean, I, I reflect on a recent issue we experienced with one of our match officials and referees, you know, they're exactly the same. The scrutiny on their performance falls back into their families, it falls back into them dropping their children to school, um, the criticism, um, the unwarranted toll that will take on that person individually and then his extended family. And that can be anyone across the game. It can be players, it can be coaches, um, it can be match officials. Um, it's a tough industry um, and you need to come forward into professional sport knowing that it is a tough industry. It has enormous rewards, but it also has some, some really difficult moments, particularly in difficult times for some people. And let's face it, some people aren't equipped with the resilience in order to deal with that. We need to help them. Uh, we need to put good support around them, good systems around them. 
and make sure they do feel supported, not just those players, but as you've said, their wives and their children, to make sure they understand the context of some of that challenge. Um, but it's not going to go away. If anything, it's going to get more difficult, particularly with social media where effectively every fan now has the ability to voice an opinion. Um, but again, it takes discipline in order to when to tune in and when to tune out. And some of our young players are still learning that discipline. So for you being in the limelight and scrutiny of the media as well, to the extent you're, you are, would probably see most people sort of crumble into the fetal position with the, what you wake up to most days. How do you mentally and emotionally cope with having to regularly front the media and fans on integrity-related issues, especially when dealing with questions um, that relate to confidential situations mm. where you may, you may know the truth or you may feel that you think they're in a situation, but you've got to stay neutral? Yeah. And again, as you've described there, sometimes that's a real balance. Um, uh, I would describe myself as being a very resilient person, and I think you need a fair amount, a fair dose of resilience to survive in a job like this. Um, but again, I only usually look through one lens when making key decisions, and that's the lens of what's the best interest of the game. Um, and sometimes that won't be well understood by a certain section, whether it's a player or a fan or a club or a coach, but putting the game's best interests always through your decision making will, very, will mean you very rarely go wrong. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make you popular, but most people confuse leadership and popularity. Uh, if you want to be popular, you're probably not going to do a job like this. Uh, sometimes this job requires a healthy dose of leadership, and that's the opposite to what popular is. Um, we're not looking to be popular here, we're looking to do the right thing by the game. So being a CEO can be very lonely at times. And many leaders are challenged by what we would call CEO loneliness. Mm. So how important is it for you to have a team of mentors or support people around you? And how do you kind of determine what type of people you need in your space to ensure that you're not left alone when the big calls are made? Yeah, look, I think that's a good question and something I've talked about for a while now. You're right, roles like these can be quite isolating. Um, I do two things. One, I've maintained uh, a mentor for a long period of time, almost two decades now, nearly 20 years with the same person. That person sits outside of my day-to-day. -day. Uh, in fact, he doesn't live in New South Wales, so he's not close to the day-to-day -day issues. But uh, when I catch up with him, usually quarterly, it's very much a personal catch-up. It's very much about my values, my strategy, my career goals, my career plan my family plan, and he's helped me enormously balance some of those challenges. The second part of that is talking to comrades and colleagues in other sports, and we've created good relationships and partnerships with people in similar positions. Um, and so regularly catching up with you know, the leaders of other sports and bouncing ideas and challenges of each other help you at key moments when you are going through some sort of crisis or challenge. Um, and again, always looking through it with perspective because um, while sometimes you feel like you're in the middle of a vortex, sometimes you need to stand back and assess it from the outside and there are other opportunities that become quite, uh, quite available when you consider that way. How do you channel your competitive instinct as a leader? Yeah, I'm competitive by nature. Um, I'm less concerned about winning, I'm more concerned about competing um, because ultimately you can't win everything. Um, and whether that's a negotiation or it's a a game on the weekend, but I'm a competitor uh, and I like to compete and I like to be well prepared. 
and I maintain with my own team here that you very rarely will lose an argument or a discussion if you know your subject matter better than your opponent. And to do that means you have to do the work. You have to be prepared to be prepared. And quite often you'll see a lot of people try to take shortcuts. Um, and there are no shortcuts to any place genuinely worth going. You have to do the work. And so we say regularly here, let's be prepared. Let's put our best foot forward. Let's give our best account of ourselves. And uh, ultimately it's not about winning, it's about competing. So keeping perspective is important as a human being and you've kind of alluded to this as we've gone along. How do you separate an all-encompassing CEO role with what is happening around you with your family mm. and, the, and the rest of your life? Yeah, again, that's f again finding balance. And you know, I'm very fortunate um, to have a very strong family network. I mentioned before I'm the eldest of four boys, so my three brothers are effectively my best friends and we talk regularly. But equally at home, you know, my wife and I have been married uh, nearly 23 years and we've got two grown up children in their 20s, both at university and that uh, family network, the four of us who've been on this journey for a long period of time, um, understand some of the demands, but also help me balance some of those demands out as well. Um, and quite often not bringing work home at night, not bringing some of those challenges home, and again, being able to compartmentalize certain things and understanding what's family time and what's work time. And again, being disciplined to follow that through is probably the greatest challenge. It can be all consuming if you allow it to be. Uh, but again, it takes discipline to when to turn off and turn on again. But I've been very fortunate um, to have enormous support uh, from that internal circle, if you like, that very much inner circle of key family who will support me unconditionally through some of those challenges. And they understand me and they understand my values so that they will uh, not believe everything they read or hear in the papers. Do you have any like triggers or cues that go, bang, I switch out of now being on a CEO and now I'm in the family? Um, uh, look, I try to. I wouldn't say that I'm perfect at it because it's easily to be, to be distracted. I think one of the key things in a job like this is to use a cricket analogy, is to when to play and when not to play. Um, you know, quite often you describe rugby league being played on a very green wicket and you would have to let a lot of balls go through to the wicketkeeper. But occasionally you, you see one, you have to play very straight at that and defend strongly. Uh, and that's what we do here. When we see something that really cuts to the core fabric of the game or the integrity of the game, we'll defend it. Uh, and then there's a lot of other things that happen in the daily media cycle which I describe as white noise. Um, their comments on the game and their people with emotional connections to the game and they make comments and commentary and that's their job. Um, we create an enormous amount of content um, but sometimes that won't require me to make a comment, it won't require me to jump into that. Occasionally it will though and it's really important you have some instinct and instinct comes from experience um, of when to play and when not to play. We all know smart people have great answers but the best people ask great questions. Mm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Mm. It's a really good question. We ask ourselves uh, that around here a lot about challenging yourself. And uh, if you can't answer that question well enough, when was the last time you did something for the first time, then maybe you'd need to look at the barometer of how risk averse you are. Because challenging yourself and doing something for the first time is exhilarating. Uh, only recently, I was in New Zealand and uh, on a couple of quiet days off and did a few things uh, in New Zealand, you know, around um, on the Dart River, you know, and getting on some of those jet boats. And I hadn't done that before. And the exhilaration of doing something for the first time um, is wonderful. And 
we should always be uh, connecting with others and doing things for the first time. Children quite often do it for the first time because they aren't fear of failure. Uh, they have no fear of failure. Um, I think as we progress our careers, being quite risk averse stops you from doing things for the first time. But it's, it's a great question and one we should challenge ourselves on regularly about doing things for the first time. What's the one question that you would love to solve? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Well, the one question if I had, um, it's probably um, about being a little kinder to ourselves as a sport. I think quite often um, we look straight through the we. When I talk about we, I talk about the whole game and everyone connected with the game from fans right through um, to the boards of our clubs and, and, uh, and of the NRL is, is to be a bit kinder on ourselves as a sport and to find positive rather than negative. Um, I think that's a real cultural attribute in our society at the moment that it's easier to talk down than talk up and I would like to see more people find the good rather than the bad. Yeah, I like that one. At Active CEO, we're passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave them with a call to action. What is one piece of advice that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, this, uh, this for me is a simple one, but something that you can be practiced daily. And it, it cuts to the very core of being a good person. It, it's that simple uh, but effective opportunity for random acts of kindness. Um, to simply step outside your day-to-day -day challenges or your day-to-day -day concerns and find ways to put kindness in front of somebody else. That can have such a meaningful impact for that other person and for you, uh, but it can be so small and so random and so easy to identify on a daily basis. Uh, around our family dinner table, we talk regularly about random acts of kindness and around our executive and leadership team, we do the same thing about doing something for someone else and expecting nothing in return. Uh, that can be sometimes the most satisfying part of your day. It can be something as small as introducing yourself and patting someone on the back and saying, job well done, to something much, much bigger and material. But every one of us can do it. No matter where you sit in the organizational chart, from top to bottom, random acts of kindness can make a substantial difference to someone else's life. So if that's my one piece of advice, that resonates with people, I hope they take it up strongly. You've shared some really great advice and some real gems in there uh, for people to take away. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with the work that you're involved in? Look, uh, if, if people do want to have a, a broader look at what we're doing here at the NRL particularly, it's through our community programs and our community pillar. Uh, and that's very easy to access via nrl.com. You can see that there are effectively three or four primary focus points for us. Um, when I started the NRL some years ago, we used to do literally a uh, hundred different uh, organizations and causes, and we were trying to be all things to all people. Now we narrow our focus much more securely into three or four, and those pillars are really about domestic violence, mental health, our indigenous programs, particularly our school to work program, and mentoring a thousand Indigenous boys and girls every year about trying to make sure they get them to year 12 and then transition into university or a vocation. Um, these programs for us are so fundamental about using our profile and our voice for greater good. So anyone who wants to learn more about those should definitely jump on NRL.com and if so, reach out to some of our uh, community programs and if they'd like to assist, help us make a difference to others. That'd be great. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. So Todd, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I really enjoyed kind of listening to those early days of your your mm. life and you know how the sport was such a, a big part of it and 
probably more than that was the family and the community mm. aspect around you. And I really like how you've transferred that into all the roles that you've had mm. and to really see NRL grow much bigger than just the sport and go beyond and help society. It's a pleasure to kind of get an insight into your world and the challenges you face and how you deal with it with such humility and resilience and humbleness in what can be a very challenging and threatening environment. So thank you very much for your time today, Todd. I look forward to seeing how NRL uh, continues to grow and foster in the next few years and also to see how your career and the difference you make to the world grows uh, in coming years. Thank you and thanks for having me on this program. It's uh, nice to be able to share some of that journey and uh, and to, to go back in time to understand how you can have an impact on others uh, ultimately in a professional sense. That's what we're here to do. So thanks for having me on the show. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about cultivating performance. It's around discipline. Performance doesn't occur on its own. It requires hard work, consistency, recovering with purpose, and most importantly, discipline. You need to cultivate your performance through being disciplined and ensuring that you have established the small, repeatable daily actions that are required to achieve your goals. Discipline is a work in practice. It is something you need to develop, train, and then maintain to be successful. How are you gonna be cultivating performance this week? Thank you for listening to an engaging and in-depth conversation with Todd Greenberg, More Than A Game, on episode 65 of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. Have you ever felt the energy rise up when someone walks into a room? You move forward to the edge of your seat, sit up straight, your shoulders suddenly relax. You exhale gently, a smile beams across your face and you feel the energy continuing to rise as they walk in looking confident with a welcoming smile, bounding with energy, enthusiastically acknowledging everyone in the room and ready to deliver for the team. Doesn't it feel amazing like they have a greater purpose and are ready to do what it takes to ensure that the team performs to a higher level. The problem is that this occurs less than 10% of the time. No wonder more than 85% of the workforce are actively disengaged from the work that they do every day. We have found that CEO presence provides the tools to ensure that you are ready to deliver a performance that people sit up and take notice of Find out more by contacting Craig Johns at craig at nrg2perform.com or on the contact page of the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. 
Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.